Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. This morning I got up and I did what I do on most days. I'd like to say I do it every day, but I've never been one of those people. Uh, and I practiced meditation or I sat. Usually I just say I sat. But my experience of it is very much of a practice, of a repetition that has some vague future goal that I mostly kind of ignore because if I think about the goal too much, I don't do the practice. And I have a routine where I, I, I light incense in a certain way and I bow before my altar in a certain way that I got sort of from Zen practice, but it's sort of modified in my own way. And I bow before my pillow. So I have these little ritualistic elements, even though in general I'm not a very ritualistic person. Um, and uh, so I, I like my, my religious practice to be pretty spare, which I, I mostly involves just sitting there. Uh, and going through a, a series of internal practices. Well, what am I going to do with my breath? What am I going to do with my mind? Uh, uh, am I going to try to pay attention to the sound? Am I just going to open up? You know, there's all these little maneuvers uh, within that are very familiar and yet somehow always a little bit fresh. And then I finish that and then I have another set of practices and this involves making tea and there's different ways I can make tea and sometimes I, I decide different ways and some of them require a little bit more work because it's like Chinese tea and I have to hold the cup right or it spills wrong and you know once again there's this sense of kind of both refining through repetition and a kind of embrace of, of, of human possibilities through this sort of activity of practice and there's something connected between these things, making tea, making breakfast, sitting, and indeed a whole wealth of things that we do uh, in our lives, in, in, including um, creativity, which we think of maybe as being spontaneous or we're, we have some kind of inspiration. But if you look at, at the reality of crafting things, whether they're books or artworks or performances or musical compositions, you're going to find a huge amount of what we're doing is something about practice. Um, it's a term that seems very obvious in some ways. We, we kind of refer to it a lot and, and it's sort of, it, it's, um, it seems relatively clear. And yet the more you think about it, the richer and more complex and even contradictory uh, it becomes. And uh, today we're going to be talking with, with two editors who put together a, a wonderful book um, on MIT Press called Practice. Uh, document, it's part of the Documents of Contemporary Art series. Um, and so the, the majority of the pieces in it have to do specifically with artists reflecting on practice, the meaning of practice, their practice. Um, but as we'll see in the conversation, once you start talking and thinking about practice, it starts moving many directions. Uh, so the book ends up covering, you know, technologists, uh, political theorists, uh, spiritual uh, teachers, activists, uh, and, and a lot of just really fascinating stuff about certainly a lot of art, artistic practices and artists that I, I wasn't aware of. Um, um, the, one of the uh, editors of the book, Marcus Boone, and I have been talking about practice for decades because we've known each other for a long time and have been very interested in it as spiritual practice, as political practice, as artistic practice. Um, and it's fun to sort of see uh, his uh, the, the spirit of these conversations going through the selections in, in the book. Um, but equally important to the project is uh, Gabriel Levine, 
uh, a friend and and, uh, and colleague of Marcus's, who's a researcher, musician, uh, and an artist uh, who's written a lot about art. And so it was a kind of fun to sort of see an internal conversation going on uh, in this wonderful book. So, uh, uh, Marcus and Gabe, uh, welcome to Expanding Mind. Hey, Eric, how's it going? It's good, good to be here. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, like I, I guess I'm, I'm first sort of interested in how and a little bit about the the drift of the term or, or the the richness of the term and both the excitement and it must have been a bit overwhelming at times putting together this book because again it's the idea of practice is so central to so many of our activities uh, within our within the experience of being human you know it goes on and on and on and yet it's not really thought about that thoroughly uh, as a concept, as a as a place to to understand the interconnections between all these different dimensions of our lives, and so once you start, I mean, you can go in a, a myriad of directions, and and I realized that the kind of core focus was the arts, performance art, plastic art, craft to a degree. Uh, but how did you kind of corral all of the you know, the web work of associations and different meanings of this term that, that could have been brought together in this already very rich and, and multidimensional uh, book. Well, it's interesting because the project didn't actually begin as a book about art. Uh, we cooked up the idea of a reader on the concept of practice or on theories of practice, which uh, was as you say, like a completely overwhelming subject with all kinds of vastly different associations, practice as a kind of tacit uh, structure of behavior, practice as uh, disciplined repetition, practice as doing as opposed to thinking or making, you know, which is kind of its origins in Greek thought. So we spent some time putting together a kind of dream reader of mostly theoreticians, philosophers, uh, people in social sciences, you know, creative writers, people writing about practice, and then pitch that book as a kind of thousand page, impossible <laughs> tome, <laughs> epic tome. And Marcus uh, showed it to an editor at MIT who said, well, you know, this isn't really so plausible and doesn't, not really the sort of thing that they're doing, but if you revise it and make it about art, it might be really good for the Documents of Contemporary Art series at MIT Whitechapel. So that's what we did, and to our surprise, because neither of us is actually really deeply involved in the contemporary art world, uh, the series editors were very excited and they decided to, to go for it. Well, I, I think it's really wonderful, and it, it makes sense you're coming from that perspective. And that's kind of what I suspected and Marcus had referred to when we had talked about the project over over the years, because that's sort of my you know, the, it's it's the theories of practice and, and some of its larger implications that I'm more familiar with than the arts. And so for me to re reading the book kind of from my own perspective, meaning, you know, with my own interests. So I, I kind of instantly went to all the sort of familiar characters, uh, Agamben and Benjamin and Foucault and Sloterdijk and all this sort of more ph philosophers and theorists that I was a little more familiar with and, and revive, you know, seeing things that I hadn't seen in a while or stuff that I hadn't read before. And then kind of drifting into all this this um, this writing by artists, many of whom I hadn't heard of. 
And it was really wonderful because I could I could kind of see their practice in a different way. I don't consider myself an artist. You know, I play music sometimes, but I'm not it's not like I'm actively in that world. But without worrying about whether or not, you know, things count as art or not as art, I could suddenly see the world, the problem of practice for artists as being in a way an extension of these other issues that I tend to think of more philosophically or politically or even spiritually. Uh, so it really kind of, for me, allowed, allowed me an angle into thinking about contemporary art in a different way than I normally do. And I, it, I get the same, I suspect that this something was probably even similar for you guys. Yeah, I mean, I think we were struck by how important the word practice is in contemporary art already, that just that, uh, you know, nearly every artist today speaks about having an art practice. And, you know, the, the shift from thinking about art as, you know, basically a matter of painting or sculpture or the fine arts to thinking not so much in the terms of the production of a particular kind of object, but just uh, that artists do something and whatever it is they do, that forms their practice. And then maybe they present it in a gallery or there's some way in which whatever they do is contextualized as art. Uh, I mean, it, it's a fascinating shift and a, a really powerful one. And go, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, well, what do you think is be, behind that shift? I mean, I, I was thinking, I ended up thinking the same thing. And I was going, does this have to do with like, the sort of shifts in the 60s and 70s towards process and happenings and multi you know disciplinary work or does it have to do with the way artists need to create a language to sort of justify what they're doing or you know what 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 is behind that that shift because that, that was my experience I was like wow practice is seriously developed multidimensional term inside of contemporary art making yeah, I mean, there's so many levels to it, and I mean, we could talk about a few of them. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of hostility to the term as well among certain art critics and also among artists who I've spoken with who just loathe how artists are constantly referring to their practice. And the, the main criticism is that it sounds kind of uh, professionalized, like a therapist's practice or, you know, a lawyer's a legal practice. Like they have a nameplate on their door, and you know have certain bona fides, and so on. That's so <laughs> funny. I would I wouldn't have even thought of that because yeah. it's just about the way that the term reverberates in different directions. You know, like yeah. I think about it as like something you're more like committed, like like meditation. Like I just do my exactly my. <laughs> so there's these different these different ways to come at it, but I think that that critique about the sort of professionalization. The connotation of professionalization of the term is actually quite grounded because that's something that has happened to art making also over the past 30, 40 years is that it's become quite professionalized and that pretty much every artist who's working within the field that's demarcated as contemporary art has to pass through an MFA program or even now what's called a practice-based PhD program in order to join the profession in some ways. So I think there's there's some justice to that hostility to the term like practice does mark a kind of a kind of professionalization of, of art making and ironically you know when you go to a art gallery or an art museum and you look at a painting or a piece of work 
and then on the wall there's like a 400 word essay basically that explains the meaning of the work i mean that also is, has something to do with practice in that people coming out of mfa programs they're not just producing work they're also theorizing or conceptualizing their work in a particular way that i don't know professionalizes it packages it for a marketplace mm -hmm. uh it gives it a kind of legibility as well yeah and yeah, no, go ahead. So, ironically, I guess theory actually enters the picture at that point too, yeah. that when we're talking about practice, we're not simply talking about the act of doing something, but we're talking about what happens when you think about what it is you do and justify it or orient yourself or take some particular angle on what, what you're doing so the practice is never simply doing something it's also conceptualizing what you do and and organizing it in a particular way and and just as a side note you know on the prevalence of the term in the art world there's even a kind of shift towards talking about practice instead of talking about art so that the term contemporary practice gets used quite a lot to refer to what artists are up to, you know, where, so the artist kind of vanished from the picture. And in fact, there's these debates about, you know, the names of certain F MFA programs, like an MFA in contemporary practice, for instance, that maybe somehow betrays the, uh, you know, its origin as, an, as a fine arts program. That's very strange. I, I had noted that. Now, when, in that term, does that also have to do, do you think, with the shift towards sort of an emphasis on kind of continual process and production and, and, and you know, which, which seems so um, resonant with our, our time where it's, it's less about making, you know, discrete objects that maybe take years to kind of finalize and you have this object and it, it, it goes off and does its own thing in the world. And instead there's this sort of this emphasis on I mean, we're all of us, we're, we're constantly modulating these processes that are circulated with seemingly greater speed and, and sort of uh, almost uh, incorporeality. It seems to be part of the condition of our, of our experience today with, all, with everything speeding up. And, and, and I'm just kind of curious whether that's, do you think that that's part of that shift as well, that, that, it, that the, the, it's almost anachronistic to think of an art object or, or a discrete piece, whereas what's more important is kind of both a language and an engagement, even an entrepreneurial engagement with uh, the, just the world of process that we're constantly doing, you know, updating this and turning that, exploiting this network to produce this event and mediate the event and promote it and then return it and then package it to sell it in this other way. Or, you know, that, that kind of world is so much a part of our just broadly, at least our professional lives, but increasingly our personal lives as well. Do you think that's partly what, what's going on with that shift? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the art critic Lucy Lippert coined this phrase, uh, the dematerialization of the art object. And she was focused on this period, 1966 to 1972, you know, which is the period of happenings, of uh, a kind of radical movement of art away from 
the painting and sculpture towards process. Land art also. Land art. I mean, there's so many of the directions contemporary art has taken is away from from these older forms to what, as you're calling them, process-based activities, I guess. And, you know, there's a history, obviously, of that that goes back to Marcel Duchamp or Dada or surrealism, you know, which were explicitly anti-capitalist or anti-authoritarian movements where the art object itself was seen as uh, an ideological form, a commodified form, and the Dadaists believed you had to smash that form and replace it instead with a kind of continual experimentation uh, without a, a final goal, maybe, or and uh, that then carries through to someone like John Cage in the 50s and the notion that artists should maybe be more concerned with being, perhaps even, than uh, making something. And then, and then just to kind of offer another uh, genealogy, one of the one of the earliest pieces that we have in the book, because the the book the nature of these books is that they have to be organized chronologically. So I think our second piece is by Leopold Senghor, uh, you know, the great uh, poet and writer of the Negritude movement, later the president of Senegal, on the general nature of African art, where he's kind of arguing that this idea of the discrete art object, the kind of autonomous art object, is also a colonial construct, and that. You know, looking at how art is produced in traditional African societies, for him, it's a slightly romantic view, of course, but it's, you know, integrated within daily life processes. It's part of the lived experience of the community. You know, uh, singers are narrating the history of a people and so on. So there's also, I think, an anti-colonial pushback uh, against a kind of object-focused conception of art, which is then carried through in the book and looking at the work of different indigenous artists uh, like Rebecca Belmore and uh, indigenous Australian artists as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to romanticize it a little bit. I mean, in, in a way that's not necessarily even a bad thing because it, it, it stirs desire, but just to to recognize the way in which, I mean, there's the wonderful piece, I'm not gonna remember the, the name of the author, but writing about a, uh, a kind of uh, active uh, uh, cr- crafts group in uh, Western Australia, moving around to different uh, Aboriginal communities, uh, w- you know, working and, and just the whole question of like how these objects function. They don't look like the official art that we're sort of familiar with uh, in the post 1970s boom and in uh, an acrylic painting that comes out of the, a lot of Aboriginal communities in Australia. But it's more of this sort of craft realm. And yet through that, you can see the way that that practice as uh, still the creation of objects, it's, it takes on a completely different frame than a kind of individualized drive towards, you know, s- individual expression or towards the creation of some kind of singular object, which is, is still sort of, um, you know, still weighs heavily on, on, on art in the West. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of, Peter Sloterdijk's basic ideas is that there's we live on something like the planet of the practicing, that what human beings, and not just human beings, animals, maybe even plants do, is practice. And that 
in a way, the, the world, the universe consists of this kind of interlocking, intersecting world of mm -hmm. beings defined by how they practice, what they practice on, who they practice with. So, yeah, there's all these uh, different forms of collectivity that in some way uh, were suppressed or repackaged. I think you see it within the Aboriginal Australian context where, you know, the way in which Aboriginal contemporary painting was packaged over the last 40 years was individual artists producing paintings for a marketplace and therefore kind of being inserted in a contemporary capitalist art market. And what Jennifer Biddle does in this wonderful book, uh, Remote Avant-Garde, is to talk about all of the ways in which uh, Aboriginal artists today are actually doing something quite different to this notion of just inserting themselves in the art marketplace and that without necessarily being simply nostalgic for a kind of pre-colonial or pre-modern idea of tradition, they're actually generating new experimental forms of tradition that relate to uh, practice or what it means to practice. Yeah, it seems like a really rich uh, juncture there between contemporary forms of practice and new forms of collective being. And, and almost to the sense that I, I, I could almost sense not, not an anxiety, but a, but a sort of stress in the, some of the selections and the way things were laid out, because you also have a, you know, a really, you know, very helpful section on a sort of, uh, you know, a, a left version of the history of the idea of praxis in political struggle and its relationship to, particular to collective becoming. And obviously now we're in this weird crisis of collectivity, one way of thinking about it, um, where the, the everything in the West has been so hyper-individualized and that whole process of kind of individual praxis even in very in, in ways that were once I think extremely productive and and rich and interesting spiritual practice individual artistic practice whatever that that world has been so well absorbed into the matrix if you will uh, that it we, we it it, it it's not going to bite anymore like it, I don't care what you're doing on your in your on your yoga mat it's not doing it maybe it did it in the 70s for a while because it allowed something to happen but it's it's not working now and these are a lot of things that I love deeply uh, and so I, it feels like part of what we're how do can can practice be a place where new forms of collectivity are able to emerge in a way, whether it's under an artistic collective context, whether it's a political context, in a way that's new to happen or some way to avoid the, the, the kind of apparatus of capture that we're all trying to, to resist and, and yet we have no choice but to submit to just to a certain degree. Was that, were those kinds of questions on your minds as you were, as you were putting this together? Absolutely. I mean, I think you've really put your finger on our, our kind of submerged intention in the book. I mean, in the end, this book is a book about kind of deep political questions, like what, how can we resist this drive towards these very entrepreneurial, individualized forms of self 
self-practice, let's say, or, or, you know, sometimes they express themselves as self-care, like the yoga practice that you mentioned. Sometimes it's just, as you also were saying earlier, this kind of entrepreneurial self-shaping, you know, self-promotion, branding, and so on. That seems to be really, to, to my mind anyway, the dominant container for practice that we have today. So absolutely, we're interested in looking for other forms of practice, you know, and that, and that the second section of the book, which is called Collective Action, is absolutely about the, the kind of fortunes of, let's say, a kind of Marxian idea of praxis as collective revolutionary transformation of society and putting pressure on that idea, you know, to see how it might still carry some weight today, perhaps in different forms than Marx intended. But I, I think also even just, I mean, you know, I don't know where we get to with this question in the book, it's left quite open, but I do have to say that it's interesting that this is the first book in the series that's edited by more than one person. It's a collaborative effort. So even in that, I think hopefully we're trying to subvert a little bit the, the individualized, you know, neoliberal branding model. One of the few kind of struggles we actually had with the editors who were extremely supportive generally was that they did have a tendency to turn what were in fact collective art projects done by groups of people, say Pussy Riot in Russia or... Um, group, group material in New York in the 80s. Yeah, that they would um, reframe those as being statements by individual artists. And so there's a way in which even uh, telling this, I don't know what, the history, the story of art itself kind of tends to slide back into a notion of the artist as individual agent and collective experimentation tends to um, just kind of slip to the side of the story quite easily. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot because... I've been watching the the kind of transformation of of uh, festival culture of Burning Man, you know, and and has that's kind of gone out. And and what's one of the things that's interesting about it is that on the one hand, it's you know a pretty a pretty apolitical form in a lot of ways, uh, but it is an aggressively collective uh, environment, and. And it's so one of the, you know, uh, questions for me is just, um, yeah, how do we think of collective pra practice as, as a way, you know, whether it's creative, whether it is uh, cultural as a, a possible way of, of bringing people together and just a, in, a, in a different in a different mode outside of the tendency towards a certain kind of that that individualism that you, you, you so well um uh, describe Gabe, where there's like the the entrepreneurial self, mm. the um, the kind of absorbing quality of of, of self care, uh, and so what what are some of the collective operations groups, creative uh, forces today that you guys discovered or or thought about more more seriously uh, in terms of new forms of collective action. I think it's a really good question, and I don't have an I don't have a great answer to it, to be honest. I mean, I think that like I'm coming from a history of playing in bands, of being in small scale theater companies, and I think I've always been quite preoccupied with this problem of the collective, and it's a it's a sort of a layer of 
experience that I feel like often that gets neglected. Like we often think about, you know, individual experience or, you know, the couple, let's say, or even friendship or social forces. But this level of a kind of small group of people who gets together to do something in particular, I think is kind of not often really theorized in a way. I mean, maybe Sartre did it a little bit in the critique of dialectical reason, <laughs> but but um, I guess I've just really, uh, in my own experience, I've seen the pressures and the problems that are brought to bear on those kinds of small group uh, experiences. I learned how kind of toxic they can be sometimes, but also how generative they are. So I still I still am very interested in people who've managed to make that work. So like a collective like Temporary Services, for example, is an art collective out of Chicago who I really admire, who've kind of continued for, you know, a few decades now. And there's other examples of these of these uh, these groups that still sort of push on, you know, despite all these kind of pressures and internal conflicts. And so I mean, on. you did interesting work on fermentation culture. Right. I think the notion of communes that are built around fermentation practices, for example, that to me is a quite striking example of a practice-based commune, mm. but the practice is not political in any particular obvious mm. way, that it's really a group of people who are making kombucha or experimenting with bacterial cultures, mm. and yet somehow they're also building a form of life, to use with Wittgenstein's term mm. that somehow has its own autonomy. It's true, and then and then I mean the lovely thing about fermentation as a kind of collective practice that I, that I like anyway is that it's creating a collective, you know, and kind of in Bruno Latour's sense of uh, something stretching beyond what's conventionally understood as the boundaries of the human, you know, to a kind of micro microbiome or general microbial uh, collective becoming. That's, that's kind of interesting as well. Yeah. And also it, it, it's one of those practices where the, 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 you know, the field of operation itself is giving you an analogy for how to, how to be with it. You know, I mean, the ideas of, of fermentation and the, the, the balance of passivity and, and, and activity that goes on in a successful fermenting or just an experimental fermenting is really, you know, it's a very rich. And I, I think that part of the reason that people kind of responded to that, although we, you know, we can just even go down that line because they, then you sort of have to reflect on, wow, isn't that interesting about how fermentation became kind of a thing, you know, and, mm -hmm. and with over, over the last five years, probably because it had some really great spokespeople, um, but also because it struck a nerve and it struck a nerve, I think, not only because it was yet another thing that we can now practice in our home and that to some degree, contemporary capitalism says, oh, yeah, you, you don't you don't have you can make it yourself. You can do it yourself. There's a DIY aspect to uh, our experience now that's very kind of confusing because on the one hand it's about re re, you know resisting commodification and re, you know returning praxis to a to a lived experience of our lives and at the same time it's something that we're being encouraged and if not told to do uh, in this weird way I think one of your one of my favorite pieces in the book is by Lena Relia which is all about how the DIY logic got appropriated by capitalism and why. And it's it's a disturbing piece for me because it's like oh those are all my values guys exactly that's why we <laughs> um, did it. 
you know, uh, but but anyway, to get back to, to fermentation, but at the same time, so on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's something else you can do at home. You can make pickles. Here's a book how to do it. And, you know, it's here's a whole world of online where people are doing all these things. So it appeals to that desire, which is clearly part of our world as well, to return to a world of more grounded practices. But at the same time, it strikes me that there was something special about fermentation because of that relationship with an with a non-human other. Because you were kind of relying on some life process that wasn't human, that could go awry, that could make something that was dangerous, that could make something that did that tasted terrible and you didn't really know. There's something there that I think appealed to you know, something more than just a, a, a reproduction of, of the latest capitalist logic of, of doing it yourself, something that spoke to uh, the kinds of processes that might be required for us to come up with collective forms that are able to be fresh or to, to find a new way of, of going forward without falling into the, the usual entrepreneurial tra traps. I, I really agree. Yes. And I think that, you know, just because something is appropriated by capitalist forces doesn't mean it should just be tossed away as, you know, somehow worthless. Uh, I also think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about fermentation's relation to the non-human. I also think it has this, as you also mentioned, it has a really fascinating uh, balance of mastery and non-mastery that, you know, in, I mean, Peter Sloterdijk has this book called You Must Change Your Life about what he calls anthropotechnics, which is a kind of his term for mastery through practice. And that's what he sees as kind of fundamental human experience that has been, he thinks, philosophically neglected. So I think we have a couple of, I mean, we are interested in his ideas because he's got this whole massive book on practice. It's fascinating. It's also kind of infuriating because first of all, it's all anthropotechnics. It's all about the human and something like fermentation, I think, subverts that to some degree. It's also all about mastery. And I think something that we hold strongly to, and you know, you probably do as well if you pursue a meditation practice, is that mastery is not the only way to approach practice, that there can be very powerful practices that are about non-mastery or that are about a complex interplay between mastery and non-mastery. And that's kind of the last section of the book, which is which we ended up calling disciplines, is about these sort of weird practices that fall into that category. No, I, I love that part of the book because it was like I was I, I kind of skipped around, but I, I mostly read through, you know, cover to cover, meaning like from the beginning to the end. And then when I got to the end, it was like. I felt good because it was like, oh, good, something like like concrete, like maybe I could do this, you know, like which is kind of funny when you're writing a, the you know, putting together a theoretical book on practice and there's this kind of urge to like, you know, to have something concrete, even as just a sort of symbol of a practice that you could actually do, just like so many how-to books and all this kind of thing. So it, it, it's it, it must have been kind of funny putting it together and kind of realizing that that in in a sense you were writing a how-to book even though it's like completely not explicit or clear what the what the thing is you're telling anybody or suggesting people uh, that they might do and yet in that discipline section you're like ah oh yeah that's right make a salad or whatever the thing is you know yeah i think what happened was really that there was a what turned out to be a category of practices that didn't fit into the other parts of the framework we had. And 
you know, in many ways, those were the most interesting or exciting practices. And in terms of like a relationship to religion or spirituality, uh, they're all mostly about how one relates to another of some sort. And you could think about taking a, a drug in those terms. Uh, you could think about meditation or yoga practice. That it's not so much about actually mastering something as about how you create a situation in which you're exposed mm -hmm. to, I don't know what, chaos, uh, something beyond yourself, and how you negotiate that space and share it with other beings and gradually maybe learn to inhabit that chaotic space beyond the self as, uh, I don't know, a social and political space. And that that's an interesting kind of practice, and it relates to things like Marx's idea of praxis as revolutionary struggle. Uh, one of the kind of lines going through the book relates to uh, the notion of a black radical tradition, this um, term that Cedric Robinson came up with, and the notion that within Afro-diasporic cultures, there's this continual kind of experimentation with what it means to be with other people and what it means to uh, enjoy or inhabit ecstatic states with other people. Like I think about our philosopher, theorist, I really like, Ashon Crawley, who wrote this fantastic book recently, Black Pentecostal Breath. And he grew up in the Pentecostal church and he's gay or queer and he's kind of reflecting on the history of Pentecostalism as a kind of specifically black practice of being social, of being together with other people that's at the same time like an intensely religious practice. And there's an interesting line there that would connect up with things like, I don't know, 70s house music or 80s house music clubs and uh, the dance hall as a kind of spiritual or ecstatic space. And there's um, British philosopher Julian Henriquez, who wrote this fantastic book called Sonic Bodies, where he talks about this one Jamaican sound system, Stone Love Movement, and over 350 pages, he slowly kind of explains all of the different practices that are involved in setting up a single dance hall session in, in Kingston, Jamaica, and all of the kind of forms of know-how that different people, the dancers, the DJs, the hustlers who kind of advertise the event, how all of that comes together into this kind of intense party. And I, I would see that very much as part of a kind of practice non-mastery there's also a kind of education in how to live but not how to live just as i don't know how to control everything <laughs> but but uh a new form of actually being together and he, he calls it sound practice in that book yeah. which is a really nice term you know sound as in to do with sound but also sound as in you know it's the way to be sound practice is the right kind of practice yeah. Right, right. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of one of the turns there that I I think is really 
most interesting for me, uh, partly just because of the the stuff that I that I study and and um, have been identified with in various ways or working with in various ways is is how this this idea, even if you just take Slaughter Dyke's idea, um, how it it allows us to look at religion in a different way, to look at spirituality in a different way, um, and to maybe erode some of the walls that exist between that and more secular forms of art or polit- politics or uh, just living, um, and it, how it, it, it kind of opens up uh, a sort of space for the other that speaks to something really uh, deep in people, but also potentially allows it to shift again away from the kind of uh, narcissism of the moment or the sort of uh, interiority of the moment. I mean, sometimes I go into like a, a yoga studio and I it feels like there's all this like raw, unarticulated, collective energy like if this if there was some way that this could be turned away from just feeling better or having a better you know tighter butt cheeks or looking good in the lululemon outfit or whatever it's like all the raw you know material is there for something that's totally different and it, and it, people are doing it like they actually are producing encountering these other kinds of energies and possibilities and yet it's sort of like it, it's not articulated on on that level and in the same way you could you look at uh, you know, dance clubs or music scenes, or again, festival culture, same thing with festival culture. You go there and you're like, man, we're only like a notch or two away from something really remarkable with all this energy. And yet there's also a way in which the space of ecstasy or the space of collective enjoyment or, or even, uh, intense self exploration through drugs or through spiritual practice, there's still a way in which it doesn't quite like the 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 social political implications of it just are are really hard to define because as soon as you put on something too too heavy or too directed or too project oriented it just doesn't work anymore but if you don't do that then in a way like are we just creating these sort of bubbles where people are able to have a temporary experience of some other kind of being with each other which is itself very valuable uh, but somehow it's it's not quite clicking <laughs> in a way it could at this point at this point and maybe it's not going to but but uh uh i don't know if those those kinds of issues came up for you as well i think i think that's a real question and i think in a way with the last section on disciplines we're kind of taking a counter perspective to that like there's okay yes there's the sphere of, sphere of you know temporary ecstatic collectivity which is so important and so crucial but then there needs to be some kind of discipline. You know, Alain Badiou has this interview that we both liked, you know, at the time 10 years ago, but it still resonates. We need a new popular discipline that without that, you know, everything is just a nice temporary thing that floats along by. And I, and I think that what I like about section, the last section on disciplines is that it gets into the kind of negativity of discipline as well, that it's not just about feeling good. In fact, a lot of the selections are about feeling really bad. Like, you know, Marina Abramovich taking uh, antipsychotic drugs until she has a seizure and passes out in front of an audience, or Teching Xie spending a year living on the street in New York in 1980 as a, you know, as a form of practice that was also an art, a form of art making. Uh, and these kinds of ascetic projects. I mean, there's, I think the word ascetics is quite important. 
those are there's a kind of asceticism that's necessary as well, I think, and and if practice is going to be a kind of generative idea politically going forward. Yeah, but it's almost as though there's something missing, right? Mm. And it's hard to tell whether something has to be missing because if you come up with a kind of master practice, mm. even a master practice of non-mastery, it just becomes instrumental and and kind of totalitarian in totally. a certain way. And there's very little patience with that today. But then, so what are we talking about? Are we really talking about just a kind of diverse world of everyone having their own practice and celebrating the difference of the many practices? Or is there some way in which all of this comes together? But if it's not in the form of a master practice, mm. what is it? What is it that we don't, don't get right now. Well, I'm curious on that, on that score, how the work you did, the research you did, both of you, how you saw it showing up in your life, like what in your relationship to your own practices and decisions you made about how to interact with other people or, you know, not so much in the way like, oh, I read this and oh, I'm going to try to implement it, but more just being in the field of these questions and all the different perspectives that you were reading and all the things that didn't even make it in the book. And, you know, it's been a long, long project, how you sort of saw it sort of almost spontaneously or unintentionally showing up in, in your, your daily lives. I don't know. You know, we, we went to a, a union meeting <laughs> at, at the university that we both work at yesterday. And it was a really cold day and it's April, but the, everything was covered in snow and ice. And the union hall was this kind of quite rough, decrepit building in the middle of an industrial zone. Because the university's on strike right now, so we can't meet in, on the university campus. Yeah. And so we went to this four-hour union meeting. And, you know, it was a interesting but maybe slightly predictable cast of characters there. And in some way, having to kind of watch this cast of characters ethically negotiate how they deal with each other and figure out how to deal with the institution was completely excruciating. And yet, I, I thought there was a kind of incredible beauty to the care with which people kind of uh, approach the fact that they disagree with each other, that they were trying to kind of collectively come up with some way of acting or doing something. And, you know, we ended the book on this, um, with this wonderful Mantia Diawara piece about Kadiatia, the Algerian French artist, whose work is kind of obsessed with the idea of repair. And he sees repair is a kind of almost universal principle that the whole universe is broken and all we're doing all the time is really uh, work of repair such that somehow we can relate to each other or function together. And I thought that was an incredibly powerful idea and it re resonated for me with Buddhist stuff 
and the notion of uh, a kind of reflection on brokenness uh, as a part of uh, Buddhist practice of compassion, maybe. And I, th I think that really interests me today is like thinking about brokenness and then how people work with their own brokenness and with the brokenness of what's around them um, through practices of repair, whatever they are. And that's, yeah, and for me too, with, you know, in terms of the uh, rabbinic Jewish tradition and this idea of tikkun haolam or the mending of the world, like the idea of tikkun is repair. Like it's basically ethical practice, which is supposed to be manifested in, you know, every action as oriented towards amending of the world, you know, until the Messiah comes anyway, <laughs> who's going to do do the big mending job. <laughs> well, I like that also just in terms of, and, and this connects up with something you had said before about how a lot of the experiences and, 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 um, uh, uh, goals, if you will, of, of, of a lot of the disciplines in the end were, were not about happy, easy, ecstatic stuff, um, but about difficulty. And that does seem to me like something both in the, in, in your texts and conversation, but also just in, in general, that it feels like one thing to do in relationship to contemporary crisis is to just become more intimate and familiar and okay and non-heroic and courageous about engaging the the brokenness about engaging the the dystopian quality of w where we are in some ways about engaging the crisis that is is only mounting and if you're paying half attention you can't help but ignore and it doesn't mean to submit to despair it doesn't mean to submit to you know total pessimism uh, certainly not to nihilistic uh, hedonism or whatever kind of attitude one might have in relationship to the, the the scale of of what we're facing, but really, if you look at engaging the challenge, the deep challenge, the painful, mournful challenge of our of our experience as a practice, not as a search for truth, then it kind of shifts a little bit because then it's like, oh, I'm just sort of dealing with the world as it is and finding my way through it and finding our way through it. And it's not like, oh my God, now, now we know there's no hope. So where do you go from there? You don't go from, you can't really go that many places from, because that's still a search for truth. But if you practice the brokenness, it, there's a lot more space somehow. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think you see it in certain kind of quite old-fashioned religious people, that they're priests even, that their capacity for dealing with broken situations is quite great, and they're not surprised by those situations. And in some sense, they have some kind of, I don't know what, anthropotechnics maybe that allows them to try to negotiate those things in a real way. And I noticed that you also see it with certain kind of old school leftists as well, the people who are really involved in things like unions, they tend to have a lot of room for, you know, the person who suddenly gets up in the middle of the meeting and then rants for 25 minutes and is torturing everyone with their ranting. But, you know, rather than simply shutting that person down, like they're, they're worked with and given space within 
the situation. I, I remember a friend of mine talking about a Quaker meeting where one of the people who goes to the meetings all the time says that there are there are some people who feel the 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 voice speaking within them too much, <laughs> and you know it's clearly part of the. I don't know, technology of the Quaker meeting to handle these people who who, who, who do not necessarily <laughs> create an ideal space for reflection or whatever. But that that isn't an obstacle. That's actually part of the practice is mm -hmm. to to work with that. It makes I mean, what you said also makes me think of Donna Haraway's recent book, which is called Staying with the Trouble, which is a nice phrase which in turn makes me think a little bit about another strand in this book. I mean, maybe we don't get to it as much as we could have, which is how practices theorized by people in science studies. And I'm thinking of Isabel Stengers here, who has this lovely piece, uh, Notes on an Ecology of Practices. And here, here it's like another meaning of the term that we haven't really got to yet in this conversation, which is about the kind of multiple, you might call them communities of practice that have their own integrity. And she's, Stengeres is particularly interested in practices of experimental scientists, which she feels are, she feels that practices in general are under attack right now. And, you know, you can certainly see that today with the kind of, uh, you know, assault on, on science, let's say on the, not science, you know, with a capital S or as you say, truth with a capital T, but on the actual practices of scientists, which are much more complex and, and you know, interesting than, uh, than we might have thought from the outside. So I think like one another response to your to your statement about you know our contemporary crisis is also to find a certain kind of integrity of practices, you know whether that be science, whether it be writing spiritual practices or you know music or whatever it is like don't let the people who want to degrade those practices win you know yeah you know it, it is funny that there is a, an element of concern of i don't know it's a, I, I keep like stumbling over the word conservative i don't know it's yeah. it's crappy but there's some kind of of like a, a sort of old school ethical stance that seems required uh, in the sense of just whatever the content of it is. And it, it'll, it's going to be various for many different people, a, a sort of like, no, I'm, I'm not going to go down that slide or no, that's just bad. You know, like a sort of resistance to a kind of easy relativism where like, wait, well, hey, man, we're all just doing our thing. Some people are selling their souls online. Some people are just, you know, become whatever, you know, you're like, no, no, the, the, y there are these kind of values. And, and um, the, I think that's required for discipline, you know, it's, you know, and that we actually already have it. A lot of people already have it, but they don't recognize that they already have the kind of, they have the, the, the meat for something deeper. You know, they can go deeper into the affirmation of a, of a practice that has integrity or, or that has, that resists the easy, if you will. Or that we could actually build our world more around those values that are generated from within particular kinds of practice mm -hmm. rather than basically saying whatever is economically feasible will allow to exist as a practice so long as it finds its place in the marketplace mm -hmm. and if it can't do that then basically it should die or go away and well 
That, that's a, a wonderful place to end, which I'm afraid we're going to have to do now. But that I, I, I keep coming back to that. And I thank you guys both for this conversation and for uh, putting together a book that, though chewy, it's not an easy read, uh, is a, a very rich way of approaching precisely these, these, these core issues. So uh, thanks you, thank, thank you both for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Bye. All right. Until next week, keep your minds open. Bye.